Well, uh, I enjoyed introducing Brother Hardy on uh, Monday night, and uh, he had a wisecracker or two to make after I did, but he didn't leave me anything to make a wisecrack about. <laughs> um, so thank you for that, and uh, I value the friendship greatly. As near, near as I can remember, every time that we've been together in a fellowship meeting or preacher's meeting, every time that it's my turn to preach, he's sitting right up on the front somewhere every single time and just wants me to know I'm there. Uh, you know, you may fall off the platform, you may lay an egg, but he's there anyway as a friend. <laughs> yep, I've seen it both ways. Okay. Thank you, Pastor. What a blessing. Thank you for the music, my soul. What a blessing. Good night. Uh, Miss Amy and I spoke just a moment ago after the choir got through singing. It reminded us of bygone days, and I said to her, if Brother Floyd was here, it's just a good chance he and I'd be running around the auditorium right now. And uh, I'll never forget the time Brother Floyd stood up right over here. I was preaching about out of Nehemiah about the importance of the singers and singing. And just right out of the blue, I mean, no, nobody expecting it, Brother Floyd stood up and said, well, glory, hallelujah. And you could feel the collective gasp of our congregation. Like, what's happened to Brother Floyd? <laughs> and, uh, it was so stunning to our church, I had to preach a sermon called, Should Floyd Shout? <laughs> that was the name of the sermon, Should Floyd Shout? And the conclusion really was, why is he the only one shouting? Amen. That'll preach. Okay. Now don't stand yet, but let's go to the gospel of Luke chapter 12. Don't stand just yet. And the preaching clock doesn't start till after I've read the text anyway. So that'll be a little bit. So let's uh, look in Luke chapter 12. I want to make a comment about it. Uh, Luke chapter 12 here. And then uh, we'll be getting to our text in just a moment. <clears throat> But if you were to study Luke chapter 12, and many go on into chapter 13, but let's just say study Luke chapter 12, you'll see that in the course of Luke 12 that Jesus is teaching the multitudes and the disciples are hearing. And then as you go on through, you'll see that Jesus is teaching the disciples and the multitudes are obviously hearing. So it kind of goes back and forth like that in this chapter. You can study it on your own at another time. In chapter 12, he issues two warnings, or I will just say two bewares. He uses the term beware both times. And one is in the very first verse of the chapter where he says to the disciples that they are be, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, it's important to get that part right there. The leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Just kind of stick that in your mind, and that word's going to come up again in just a little bit. The other beware is in verse number 15, where he tells them to beware of covetousness. And uh, the hypocrisy was uh, related to, according to Jesus, verse 1, related to the Pharisees, and so is covetousness. Now, all you'd have to do is read through this and in the Gospels, and you'd see that a great sin or offense of the Pharisees were they were a covetous people in many ways. They were covetous. So Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, and beware of covetousness. 
And in that part, here in Luke 12 is when he says, at least it's recorded by Luke this time in another, in another gospel, but it says, the man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. So when he's talking about uh, covetousness and talking about uh, being, uh, having great possessions or wealth or having a lot of stuff that they were, was so important to them and they were so proud about, uh, what Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 12 is that that's where their heart is. That's where their devotion is. They were devoted. They appeared, wanted to appear to be devoted to God, but God exposed their sin. Jesus pulled the cover off of them and revealed a covetous heart. It wasn't for the glory of God at all. <clears throat> they were covetous men. I found a great quote. Um, I got two or three quotes. I hope you'll uh, bear with me on reading because uh, th these came from way back. Uh, did not using the exact same way that we would have ordered things and everything, but they're so beautifully said, I'm going to read them as they are. And one of the quotes I read on the overall view of Luke chapter 12 was this, that in this discourse, <clears throat> what he is really talking about, or the main idea of the whole discourse of Luke 12, is the strange attraction which riches possess for men the crippling and the crippling effect which this attraction exercises over the whole life. See, that's well said. I know, it's hard to read and I messed it up, so I'm going to read it again. And if you'll at least look like you got it, we'll keep moving. But if not, we keep reading. So get this one more time. He said in Luke chapter 12, the big idea of the whole discourse is the strange attraction which riches possess for men and the crippling effect which this attraction exercises over the whole life. And he goes on to say in his own way of wording things that uh, material possessions and material uh, pleasures and such as that, he says all of these are supposed to weigh very lightly on those that would be followers of Jesus Christ. They are never intended to become a master or of what we live for, but I like the way he worded it. He said, these matters should weigh very lightly on us. That is the attraction to the material possessions, to the wealth, to what the Pharisees coveted and others as well. Then Jesus gives us a couple of parables. Uh, these are parables that have to do with expectation, expectation of his coming and readiness being prepared for that. There are two parables there. I'm not going to go into them. And then we come to our text, which is found in verse number 49 and down through verse number 59. So if you'd stand with me, we're going to read from this point through the rest of the chapter. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. <clears throat> Jesus said, <clears throat> I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you nay, 
but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five and one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother-in-law, uh, against the mother, the mother-in-law rather, against the daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. And he said also to the people, when ye see a cloud <clears throat> rise out of the west, straightway you say, there cometh a shower. And so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, you say, there shall be heat. And it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Let's read that one more time. But how is it that ye discern that ye do not discern this time? Yea, and even of yourselves, why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, he sets up this court scene. When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into the prison. <clears throat> I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence, till thou hast paid the very last might. Now I want to call spatial attention tonight to verse number 54 through 56. I'm not going to reread that, but I do want you to know that we're, we're working to get to verse number 54 uh, through uh, verse 56. Father, we thank you again for this time together. We thank you for your precious word and I don't say this just because it's something to say or I've said it before, but I've thought about this many, many times. If it were not for thy precious word, if it were not for this book, the Bible, why would we really assemble here tonight? Who would we come and give attention to? And why give attention to speculation and to guesses and and man's wisdom. But God, we're thankful for the authority that is in this precious book, in your word. Thank you for the time to assemble together, sing together, pray together, give together. Thank you for the victory of the day financially at Heartland. I pray, God, that you would accomplish your purpose uh, through this portion of the service tonight. Help me, oh God, I want to be clear I pray that you would give hearing ears to this assembly and may your Holy Spirit have a control of this service. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Near as I can gather, it must have been about the year of 1957. I was, uh, if I remember right, 11 going on 12. It was in the summer We'd already harvested wheat. We were in the field doing the plowing. So 
it was hot. You got long days. You got chores to do in the morning. Then you go and do the plowing all day and then do the chores at night. And, you know, it's just a long day. It's a great time. It's a wonderful time, but it's, uh, there's work. And I remember during the night, about two or three o'clock in the morning, this was not all that unusual during this springtime and then into the early summer, uh, there would be a storm gathering. And uh, then my mother, who was very sensitive to these kind of things, uh, would get up and examine the storm. And then it didn't take much for her to be nervous about it enough to call my dad. My dad would come and then he'd make an evaluation and uh, then after a while, uh, it, most of the time, I, many times, I don't know if it's most, but many times, I can remember my dad be calling up the stairs in the old two-story house. He'd call up and say, we're going to the cellar. And then he'd call our names and he would call out, we're going to the cellar, which means you get up and you get yourself clothed. You go downstairs, the neighbors across the road, they're coming over too. And we're going in the cellar because of this storm. And time after time after time, praise the Lord, it was a dry run. And there was no tornado. And I'll never forget the night, uh, about the time frame that I was telling you about just a second ago. I'll never forget the night that my dad called up about two o'clock in the morning. So my brother, Ben, was eight years older than me. So he was going on 20 uh, years old if he wasn't already 20. And my dad <coughs> called up and said, we're going to cellar. And Ben called out to dad and said, I'm not going, dad. And I said, I'm not going, dad. So he just walked off, you know, and that was it. We went back to sleep. And everybody else went to cellar. Neighbors came over, found out later and all that. We went back to sleep, feeling pretty good about ourselves. Got up the next morning and looked out the upstairs bedroom window. And to our amazement, the Bruder house wasn't there anymore. And two grain bins weren't there anymore. They were out in the field about a quarter to a third of a mile away. And uh, the playhouse was gone. Now, now, I wasn't playing in the playhouse that time, but I had sisters and stuff, but I'm just saying. It was a playhouse for grandkids, everything. It was gone. And uh, the, the machine shed had significant damage to it. And my brother and I looked at each other. Now, that wasn't a big tornado. There had been a lot more damage than that. But it wouldn't have taken a huge tornado with a direct hit on that old house. My brother and I would have been in big trouble right there. And uh, folks have been in the cellar and we'd be trying to survive that thing because it could have been that kind of devastation to it. Now, things are so different now. Oh boy, are they different in terms of predicting the weather because they can tell you a couple of days ahead with, with a good degree of accuracy. They can tell you a couple of days ahead that these days coming up in the week or at the beginning of next are going to be prime uh, possibilities for tornadoes. So we'll have our watchers out. We'll be looking for you. And I'm thinking to myself, so, I mean, even to this day, I'm skeptical. I'm thinking, oh, sure, you're predicting tornadoes and look at the weather outside and all this kind of thing. And sure enough, it happens. And then when there are tornadoes, why they not only have the incredible technology they have to read them in such a detailed way, they have storm chasers out there all over the place and they're sending in their reports showing us live reports of a tornado that's on the ground, the damage that's going on. It's incredible what takes place. So that the point is that by today's time, uh, if you get caught in your house by a tornado, one of two possibilities. You weren't watching or even thinking about it. Or you saw it, but said, yeah, I'm not worried about it. And then get hit. Those are the only possibilities. 
Now, the reason I mention that is because Jesus, as you read, mentioned about the weather. And because Jesus at this particular time was going through much of what I described. You either were not available or you didn't have any access to what was being said or you didn't know what was said. You just refused to act on it. Jesus was going through that. That's what he was going through. And that's what he's talking about when he mentions the weather in verse 54 to 56, which we're going to come to here in just a few moments. And the reason I say we're not going to deal with them alone is because these verses can't stand alone. They don't have any real significance or real meaning unless we understand what was going on here. Why did he say these words? In what context is this? What is he talking about? And not only what is he talking about and when he's mentioning the weather, but why is he talking about this? See, we got to look at all of this to really understand what Jesus is doing here. And so what is happening is the verses prior to verse 54 amount to a startling revelation to the disciples and to the multitudes. What Jesus reveals in the verses prior to this is stunning to them. It is, I can say, shocking to them. This isn't the only place it happened, but it, this was stunning news. Now, somebody then is going to ask, uh, what kind of stunning information did Jesus give them? What revelation was made known that would have been shocking to these people? And uh, basically, it boils down to this, that Jesus forecasts, it's a, it's a two-pronged thing. Jesus forecasts his destiny. I thought forecast might be a good word to use. Jesus forecasts his destiny and the response of the Jews and the world, for that matter, to him and his destiny. So that, that's what leads up to it. So if you look down in verse number 49, Jesus said these words. He said, I am come to send fire on earth, and what will, it, uh, what will I if it be already kindled? And then talks about the baptism he has to be baptized with that we're going to talk about in just a moment. So Jesus said, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? Now, I have another good quote. I mean, I could talk about it, and I could explain about it, but it might take me about 14 minutes to say what he said here in this quote. So listen to this. Uh, J.C. Ryle said, Some think fire means the persecutions, afflictions, dissensions, and strifes which will accompany the introduction of the gospel into the world. So when Jesus said, I come to send fire on the earth, Mr. Ryle says, some think that has to do with persecutions, has to do with afflictions, has to do with dissension, strife, and all accompanying the introduction of the Messiah, the introduction of the gospel into the world. Now, he said, some think that. Well, I'm one of them some. That's exactly what I think. And I think we have good grounds to stand on. The reason I'm going to labor on that just a second is, is because this is kind of strange, isn't it? Because we know how fire is used in this way and fire is used in this way. But Jesus said, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I? Which is just another way of saying, I really wish that it was kindled already. See, 
That, that's basically what that little line in there, and will, what will I? You studied out yourself, and I think the only conclusion you can, to, can come to is that Jesus is saying, it would be my preference that the fire is already kindled, and I came to bring fire on the earth. Now, that's really an interesting statement. In fact, I've scratched my head and thought and thought and thought. I've never preached out of that verse. Uh, the other thing is, I've been under a lot of pressure in my day. I don't ever remember here in this verse. It's not like I'm breaking new ground here. I'm not saying that. But what does he mean by that? You don't hear people using this kind of phrase or, or nobody, nobody ever, I've never heard anybody say, and don't forget, Jesus came to send fire on the earth. He did. Well, that's what he said. Now, what is this talking about when Jesus said he came uh, to send fire on the earth? Well, Mr. Uh, Ryle that I just quoted talks about the fact that there are going to be, there's going to be suffering and afflictions and persecution and pain that's all associated with it. G. Campbell Morgan said, this verse is a heart burst of Jesus. Now, when I read that, I thought, well, I've never heard that either. What does it mean, a heart burst? Well, we know what happened when Jesus was on the cross, more than likely his heart burst. But this might have been a prelude to what we know as his passion. And, and at this particular time, Jesus knowing where he was, that is where he was in the journey, where he was with his time here, what was coming ahead. Jesus had awareness of that. I have to tell you, if you look at the conditions of the world, others didn't have awareness of that. If you kind of take a consideration of the atmosphere of that particular time, you would have seen out there in that multitude that I made mention of a moment ago, you'd see out in that multitude, you'd see some people that believe in him and some that don't believe in him. And uh, in this multitude also would have been at least representatives of the rulers of Israel. I like to use the term officialdom. Uh, of the official rulers of Israel would have also been that crowd. Come on, read through the Gospels. They're there all the time trying to find something wrong, trying to criticize, trying to find fault with Jesus Christ. They would have been there. Amen. And what was happening among the officialdom of Israel is a growing hostility toward Jesus. I mean, his fame and his popularity was everywhere. His name was spread abroad everywhere. Mighty signs and miracles and wonders are being done. Many are turning from Judaism to follow uh, Jesus Christ. And many are considering that. I'm just telling you, uh, there's been a lot of shaking that has gone on in Jewry in that particular time. And there was a growing intensity of the hostility and the hatred that the officialdom of Israel had toward Jesus. But there was excitement in the multitudes even many of the multitudes that didn't embrace him as the Messiah sure did like those miracles. They sure did like that bread they ate. They sure did enjoy seeing people rejoice over a leper being cleansed. Pharisees didn't rejoice about that kind of thing, but real people did. And they were excited about that. I'm just saying there was a lot of excitement among the people and there were those among them uh, that had known of his miracles that actually thought it's time to take him by force and make him king. Read John 7, you'll see that. So you got the growing hostility of the jury of the rulers of Israel. You have the excitement of the multitudes and the confusion of the disciples. They were perplexed. They were confused. 
They didn't understand. In fact, Luke 18, 34, you know what that says? Talking about the same context, not, not this same context, but Jesus is on the subject again in the gospel of Luke chapter 18. And you know what it says after he explained to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die and be raised again the third day. You know what it says? And the disciples understood none of these things. So when I say the people were growing in their hostility and the rulers of Israel, the uh, common people were excited about the masses and the multitudes and the miracles that were taking place, the power that Jesus demonstrated, the life that he lived. There was excitement there and then the disciples are scratching their head trying to figure out what's going on. But Jesus knew. He said, I'm come to send a fire on the earth. In fact, I wish it was already known. I wish it was already going. I am ready. I, I, I don't want to say this glibly. I'm ready to get on with it. Yeah. Morgan calls it a heart burst. I'm not sure where you get that. Well, no, we're not done. Look down at verse 50. Here's pretty much the explanation right here. But I have a baptism. This isn't the same baptism that John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the river Jordan. It's not even the same word. And this baptism, Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? So here is Jesus at a time, watch now, where heavy on his heart and heavy on his mind was what he was about to go through to fulfill the will of his father. It's on his mind. It's on his heart. And this term that we have here that is a baptism to be baptized with has to do with being immersed, all right, but immersed in pain and immersed in sorrow and immersed in affliction. Oh, well, just go read Isaiah 53. Everything that Isaiah said that he would be immersed in, Jesus knew that he was going to that moment. And he described it and said, this is weighing heavy on me. I'm in a straight. I am straightened until this is fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, it means he's constrained. He's locked in. Uh, I am straightened means that I am preoccupied. Uh, let's see. It means that I am committed to. That's what it means. So if you get a picture in your mind and, and picture a straight Jesus is going to go through a straight. He said he's straightened. And on this side is going to be the rejection of the Jews. And on this side is going to be the suffering and the affliction that he will bear all the way to the cross and die and be raised again. Jesus knew this was coming. And it weighed heavy on him. That's why he called it a heart burst. He's kind of bearing his soul right here. 
He's kind of bearing his soul. Well, the reason I think this is so incredible is because, uh, and this might be indeed a prelude. Somebody says, well, I don't see it here. Oh, oh let, let me get this across. Some might say, I don't see it here that he's really considering or weighing heavy or feeling the weight and the burden of. Well, I disagree with you on that because that's what straightened is all about. I am in a tight spot here. I know the place where I am. I know that I'm going to go through this state. I know I'm going to experience the rejection. I know I'm going to experience uh, being delivered into the hands of sinners. And I'm going to suffer the agony and the pain of the cross. Jesus knew what he was facing. He knew it. And he's bearing his soul about it. And if you follow Jesus from here to Gethsemane, you might come to the conclusion this was a prelude to Gethsemane. It was just the beginning of where he was headed when he would pray there in that garden alone. If it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus knew that. He is straightened. Think about that. The second part is in verse 51. Look at this. Jesus makes this known. First, he makes it known to them. I have a baptism to be baptized with you. You would have used a word that made them understand the idea of suffering and affliction and pain. And I'm straightened until it is accomplished. I am focused. I am preoccupied. This is what I am committed to until it's accomplished. That's why he said, I wish it was done already. Verse 51. Now get the picture in your mind. Put yourself there. Understand. See what's going on. Use your imagination. Oh man, listen to this. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. Stop right there. So who do you have here? Well, you have the multitudes. And who do you have? You have the disciples. And uh, among the multitude would have been at least a representation. How many? I wouldn't know. But at least a representation of the officialdom of the Jews. Rulers of the Jews. And so Jesus puts out this word and he says to them, Think ye that I am come to give peace on earth? Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? Now, look, if you can just use your imagination, many in that multitude would have said, Yes. That's why they wanted to take him by force and make him king. So many of them would have said, yes, we believe that's exactly why you came. We're sick of Rome. We're sick of the kind of life we have. We're sick of being a nothing nation when once our forefathers knew what it was to be at the top of the world as far as nations are concerned. And we're sick of this lack of identity as God's people. Yes, sir, we believe that you have come. You're going to occupy the throne of David. We believe that you are going to bring peace on the earth. That's what some of them would have said. Others of that multitude would have said, I don't know. You got any more bread? You know, because <laughs> that's why many of them were there. That's why Jesus said, so it's so. And, and then others of the officialdom, they would have said, no, no, we don't believe you're bringing peace on this earth. No, we don't believe you're the Messiah. We don't believe you're the anointed one. And they would have had bitterness and hate all about that. So Jesus said, Thank ye that I am come to sing peace, uh, send peace on the earth. The disciples would have said, well, yes, that's why we keep discussing who's going to be the greatest, who's going to sit on the right hand, left hand, who's going to sit on the right hand. Come on. Don't make me preach on that longer than I need to. That's, that's just the, the, how they're thinking. So do you think I've come to send peace on earth? 
He said, I tell you nay, but rather division. See, when I said it was shocking to them, you think they were expecting to hear that? No, they weren't expecting. You think the disciples who were quite sure that he is going to sit on the throne of David and establish the kingdom, they were asking him that question all the way after the resurrection in Acts 1. Wilt thou at this time establish the kingdom uh, for Israel? Is that what you're going to do now? After his, excuse me, after his resurrection, they were still confused about this thing. So he says to the disciples, you, you, do you think I've come to send peace on earth? Well, Yes. Yes, sir. Can't wait. Pretty excited about that. He said, I'll tell you nay. I come to send division. I doubt this verse gets to, uh, preached a lot in the 21st century <laughs> and Sunday morning pulpits, but Jesus said, I came to bring division. And it's really not anything we have to elaborate on a long time. I mean, he talks about how there's going to be three against two, two against three. And then he talks about the family situations. It's not like that we have to go looking for these numbers or the mother, daughter, father, son, all these kind of relationships. He didn't mean that we have to go examine all of those to make sure that there's no division. That's not what he's talking about. He said, do you understand how deeply my presence and who I am is going to divide? It is going to set in the same household, two against three and three against two. And a father will be against his son. And Jesus said, I will divide so that a son is against his father and a mother against her daughter and a daughter against her mother, mother and mother-in-law, daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. I'm just saying, Jesus said, I have come to bring division. There's going to be unparalleled strife and division because of me. And it boiled down to this. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Or I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's basically all it boils it down to. Right there. Belief and unbelief. And the world is still so divided. Still divided. <clears throat> now, then what would cause Jesus to go into this business about the weather. Uh, I'm guessing that his next words, that little paragraph marker there, I think it's well-placed. And that little paragraph marker there, uh, uh, I think there must be something that Jesus saw or observed or sensed in his big audience, disciples, multitudes, including those most hostile, there must have been something that Jesus sensed about what he just revealed to them. Don't you think? Why else would he start talking about the weather? Well, he's reading the crowd. He's reading the multitudes. He knows them. Oh, come on. I'm saying he's reading them. He knows all men. He knows what is in man. He needs not that any should testify to him of man. So Jesus knows who he's talking to and he knows exactly where they are. And so that being the case, Jesus must have noticed in them that there was a certain amount of apathy or indifference to what he just revealed. What did he just reveal? I am going to be baptized with a baptism of suffering and affliction and pain, and he could have included death. That's what he's making known. So let's look at the multitude. Some are sitting there, and they may have responded really wholeheartedly like this. 
a frown on their face. What did he just say? Well, what is he talking about? He's coming to bring fire on the earth in his baptism that he's going to be baptized. What, what is he saying? That would have been the response of some. The rulers would have said, you need to suffer. I said the rulers of the Jews would have been all for his suffering, all for his pain, all for his affliction. Yes, all for his death. They proved that not much farther down the road. And the multitudes, well, they were listening, the disciples. What did he just say? Let's, let's ask the, one of the disciples. What did he just say? I am come to send fire on the earth and I would that it was already kindled and I have a baptism to be baptized with and I would like to get on with it and I am, I am arrested by it. He was arrested by this before he was ever arrested by the mob. I mean, God had a hold of him and the purpose of his father had a hold of him and, and he, he, he was, he was uh, preoccupied with this alone. So, so what did he mean by those words? The disciple said, I don't know. But I can tell you who ought to be on the right hand and who ought to be on the left hand. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that. See. So they weren't really thinking Jesus' thoughts, were they? No. So he must have seen this in them. That they did not grasp. You want to talk about being alone Jesus seems all alone, hated by some, admired by others, but not understood by any. Had his 12 right here with them and they were perplexed. They couldn't have given any clearer answers than anybody out there in the multitude. I'm not trying to be ugly to them. I'm just saying that's where they were at this time. And having seen that response, Jesus gives us verse number 54. Now watch this. And he said also to the people, can I read between the lines a second? He said also to the people, what I'm seeing in you is really amazing. Allowing that, all right, now read in verse 54. When you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, there cometh a shower and so it is. No, excuse me. They were interested in the weather too. They didn't have the technology, the abilities we got now, but they don't think they didn't watch the weather. They did. And it was really very simple with the big Mediterranean Sea out to their west that when clouds gathered together in the Mediterranean and the clouds start getting bigger, then they could look at the clouds and a storm that might be developing coming in from the Mediterranean from west to east and they would say, there is going to be rain. And so it happened. How did you know it was going to rain? Saw the clouds. <laughs> Seen this before. There's a certain kind of cloud you don't have to worry about. Those kind of clouds, there's rain coming. They knew it. Is everybody with me here? Yeah. Yep. And then he goes on in verse number 50. Look at verse 50. Uh, uh, let's say 55. Where he said, then, then there comes that shower and it is so. Now look at verse 55. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there shall be heat and it cometh to pass. Now, what about that south wind? You know, here in Oklahoma, we're kind of caught in the plains and you got the cold air that keeps sweeping down from the Dakotas and Nebraska and Kansas and down into Oklahoma and makes its way into Texas. And in the summer, you got all the hot, hot, air that comes from 21 million Texans to our South. That's where it comes from. That wasn't very spiritual, but I couldn't pass that up. 
We've already got the offering committed and everything, so. <laughs> so they would feel the south wind. Actually, to their south was desert. Just to the southeast a little bit is the western part of the Arabian desert, famous Arabian, Arabian desert. And so they knew when the wind's blowing up from the south, we're in a heat spell right now because of the way the wind's coming up from the south, and they would guess it right. So I have to tell you that Jesus was not condemning uh, the, their ability to read the weather. This kind of discernment that they had, they look and they see the cloud, they predict rain, they feel the south wind, it's going to be hot. And so he wasn't condemning that. I mean, this was important to these people. This had to do with agriculture. I, I can remember as a farm kid, you know, my dad watching. I'm, I remember the storm clouds gathering and dad said they're predicting rain. I can remember laying up in my bedroom and knowing my dad really wants to get that harvest in and there's clouds back there and there's lightning and I'd lay up there and pray and just plead with God that the, that the rain would miss us and that we could get in the field tomorrow. And my dad, if we could get in the field tomorrow, I knew my dad would be happy. And it's a better day than when daddy's happy than when he's not happy. And so I remember praying and just asking God, we'll do this. And when it didn't rain, I, I just knew. God heard my prayer. Praise God, hallelujah, we're in the field and we're cutting. These people knew this. They could figure that out. You don't have to be very bright to figure this out. It didn't take a great deal of intelligence. You didn't have to have any kind of expertise. Look to the west. What kind of cloud is that? Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's rain. And it would rain. You go outside and the wind's blowing from the south and you say, what in the world's going on? We've got a heat wave going on here. Well, you, don't, you expect something else from there? That, that's how they were supposed to think about it. That's how they would have thought about it. And Jesus said, you can discern that. He wasn't criticizing or condemning them because they were able to do that. Now watch this. Look at verse 56. But you're hypocrites. You hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Now we've tried to talk about, can I have your attention? We've tried to talk about this time just a little bit. A lot more can be said. I, I don't want to go into it in great detail, but we have to understand that sort of like when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, that time was quite an amazing time. And now we are coming to this time where Jesus is exposed and being promoted or preached as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And it was also at this time, we are told, that much of Jewry, if not all of Jewry, was expecting in these days that their Messiah was near. See. So he said, but how is it you do not discern this time. That's what Jesus asked them. See what Jesus is going to do here. He is going to call attention to a discernment discrepancy that leads to hypocrisy. That's what he's doing. Now, he called them hypocrites. I mean, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, he's calling them hypocrites. So hip, hypocrite is pretty much in this text. We gotta, can't not deal with it. Sure. So Jesus addresses them, and he says, ye hypocrites? Now, why is he calling them hypocrites? Well, follow on. 
You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? So we're at a very critical time. There is a fire in Jesus that appears to already be kindling, if we can put it that way. He wish it was already done is what he suggested there. I have a baptism to be baptized with. This is the time. And so somebody said, well, I don't get the point. I don't know what you're trying to do. How should they have recognized him at the Messiah? Well, uh, hold on just a second. Number one, there are all kinds of signs all around them. I'm saying there's all kinds of signs. There are blind eyes that have been opened. Don't make me go through all the miracles, please. But just look at the miracles of Jesus Christ. And they were not done in a corner. They were done in the open and everybody knew it. And that's why his fame was spread abroad. And that's from everywhere the Jews were. They were bringing the lame and the sick and the demon possessed. That's why the, uh, the evidence of the power of Jesus Christ to perform these miracles was known far and wide far and wide. And yet in Matthew's account, they had the audacity to come and say, show us a sign from heaven and we'll believe. Doesn't that make you want to slap somebody? <laughs> My soul, show us a sign and we will believe. Show us a sign from heaven and we will believe. So he talked about discerning this time. You think about um, all the work that Jesus has done. <laughs> it, it, and it is amazing. I love reading through the Gospels. Many times in my Bible reading, I'll back, go back and at least read the Gospels a second time before I go back to Genesis and follow the little program that I have for reading through the Bible. I love to read the Gospels. I love to read and follow Jesus and see how he dealt with people. And imagine these things literally, all these miracles literally happened to real people, hopeless people, broken people, empty people, searching people, desperate people. All these things really happen. The woman at the well, how do you not love that account? My soul, just amazing. And it's all there. But Jesus called them hypocrites because they're not discerning the time. There's a discrepancy in their discernment. They know how to discern the clouds and they know how to discern the south wind, but it really doesn't take any more intelligence than that to discern the times. That's why he asked them, why is it you can't do? What is it? There's not an intellectual issue here. I said, there's not an intellectual issue. And you might want to pay attention to the words when Jesus called them hypocrites. Notice down in verse 56 again, he said, ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but now is it, but how is it that ye cannot? No, he didn't say cannot, did he? No, he didn't say cannot. He said, how is it that you do not? Somebody said they did not discern the times. It's exactly the way to say it. It's not that they could not 
discern the times. It's that they would not discern the times. Somebody said, I don't understand that. Well, you should understand it. Isaiah's been talking about it for 800 years ago when Isaiah said, this people, they have eyes to see, but they won't see. They have ears to hear, but they won't hear. They have ability to understand, but they refuse to understand. They have closed their ears. They have closed their eyes. They have closed their minds to who God is and what God's demands are upon them. And they have shut him out and their succeeding generation in part is right before him. And he called them hypocrites because they could see the sign and refuse to believe it. Um, think about it this way. Well, we need a sign to know that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah. Okay, so we unroll a scroll. It's Isaiah's prophecy. And we identify uh, where the Ethiopian inquired of Philip and he referenced him to Isaiah chapter 53. So we find that in the scroll. Okay, here are words about your Messiah. For that matter, read the whole prophecy of Isaiah. Now, once you look in the prophecy of Isaiah and you see what to expect of your Messiah, now look at him. What do you see missing in him that Isaiah spoke about right here? Now, I know the cross is still before him, but if they would listen, if they would understand, he's trying to help them understand what is coming, but they are not seeing and they are not hearing and they will not understand that's what he said. And Jesus called them hypocrites because it would take very little understanding, no more than it would take to look at the western sky and predict rain, look at the south wind and predict heat. It wouldn't take any more brains than that to understand I'm the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. <laughs> and that's what he's doing. That's why he called them hypocrites. Pretense. Pretense. No, I will know. We don't have any. No, we have no way of really knowing he couldn't be the Messiah. No, no. You hypocrite. Because if you could open their heart and mind and see they know full well. How can you say that? Because Nicodemus gave him away. But nobody wanted to talk to him but Nicodemus. So he did. And he said, Master, I know that thou art a teacher come from God. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Did he say I know? I think he said we know. And I don't think he's just talking about he and his wife. <laughs> Honestly. He said, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Amen. Nicodemus said, I don't know the answers. I don't know what's going on, but I know one thing. Only God could accomplish what we see being accomplished through you. That's it. So Nicodemus sought. I wonder if Nicodemus ever got saved. I'm holding out hope, but I don't know. I am. But I'm, I'm just saying, he knew it. Come on, this man knew it. There's only one reason he'd go down there to anoint the body in the grave. He knew. That was not just a, that was not just a peasant from Nazareth that's lying in that tomb. He knew that he was the Messiah. 
Now, whether he embraced it before everybody, I have no idea. I'm not trying to make a Christian out of a man that we don't know if he ever truly believed unto salvation or not. I don't know this, but I know this up here he knew. And I know this also, that there was great suspicion that all the rulers knew that he was the Messiah. There's great suspicion about that. Yep. I mean, they had to know. Well, if they knew, why wouldn't they acknowledge him as the Messiah? Well, they had a lot to lose. Those Pharisees and religious leaders, they had power. They loved power. I said they loved the power. And they had, um, those Pharisees, they had access to great resources. That if we acknowledge him as the Messiah, then where does that leave us? Uh, Hellbound. Unless you believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, if he has embraced and believed in the Messiah, then here's what they're saying. Come on, it's not written. It's not said outwardly, but it has to be going on inside. That's why Jesus talks about their covetousness. And that's why he talks about their desire for the things of this life and the things of this world. And why they think that a man's life is determined by the abundance of the things which he possesseth. The reason Jesus is saying all that stuff is because that's where they were. And if we acknowledge him as the Messiah, there goes our comfort zone. There goes our authority. There goes our power. Well, they got that right. And so they weren't willing to change or to be changed. So they rejected him and soon would cry away with this man. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Let him be crucified. That's where they were. <clears throat> hmm. Now I got one more little thing to deal with and we're going to go. And that is, does this say, see, because many of these people, even of those that liked Jesus, didn't necessarily embrace him as the Messiah, the Son of God. You remember the feeding of the 5,000, many of his, quote, disciples, unquote, turned and followed him no more. Remember that? Well, you're not dealing, this isn't a doctrinal issue here tonight. Nobody in this room that I would be aware of is in here trying to decide. I'm still not convinced he's the son of God. Probably most of everybody come out on a Wednesday night to a radical, I mean, a wonderful fundamental meeting <laughs> like this. Why? or people that know Jesus Christ. So that if we went around and asked the question, uh, what do you say of Jesus? That's what he asked his disciples. Who do men say that I am? And many in this room would say with conviction and joy, we believe that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. We're not, we're not wrestling with that issue. Not really at all. So is there any way to take all of this and bring it into the 21st century and talk about us for just a bit? Is there any way to do that? In homiletics class, I think in one of the classes, they, they word it like this. Can we actually take this text and build a bridge into the 21st century so that we understand there is a connection here? We're not just using this and then jumping across the ocean and making it mean what we want it to mean. We don't want to do that. Is there a way to make this fit here? Well, uh, what do you think, I think? I think there is, because in that time, which is the title of the sermon, this time, or a subtitle, Pastor, would be, this time is not that time. 
But this time is somewhat like that time. Is that profound or what? Oh man. He and I love titles now, I'm telling you. Nobody else cares, but we really like them. Now, so let's think about this just a moment. Here's what uh, J.C. Rowell, I'm quoting him again. I know, I, I, it doesn't matter who said it. This is good or not good, so you listen to it. Uh, he said this, the Christian who cannot see the hand of God in history and does not believe in the gradual movement of all kingdoms toward the final subjection of all things to Christ, any Christian who does not see the coming superior reign of Jesus over all, he said, any Christian who does not see that is as blind as those Jews in Luke 12. Yeah, that's a pretty good quote. So were they expecting the Messiah? Many of them were, many of them were sure. There was, what, from what I understand about the times, that time, there was a great expectation that the Messiah might be on the scene or might be coming. Great anticipation about that. Now, I'm, what I'm wondering is, uh, is there anything in the Bible that tells us that we should be anticipating anything about Jesus? Well, of course. What we know is that Jesus is going to come again. I mean, I've got about five pages here where I wrote out not only where Jesus talked about as it was in the days of Lot, as it was in the days of Noah. And, and not only that, uh, but when the apostle Paul, he also explained and talked about the coming of Jesus Christ and it's in the book of Acts. I mean, I, I wrote all this stuff, uh, Acts 10, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, see how fast we're going through the notes, and uh, Titus chapter 2, 1 John chapter 3, and I mean, it just goes on and on. And the ones that I marked there, if I had time to do it, I would show you that not only were reminded of the coming of Jesus Christ, but the moral responsibility that is ours, having the knowledge that Jesus is coming again. So that he doesn't just say, rejoice, I'm coming again. It's generally like this, rejoice, I'm, oh, I mean, Jesus is coming again. So here's how I should think. Here's how I should live. Here's how I should work. Here's what I should do, see. And there are moral demands put on us with the reminders of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. And one thing is clear in the Bible. All you got to do is just read through. I'm not going to insult the intelligence group. That's why I'm not giving all of these places and all the verses and turning and reading. I'm not going to do that because I know who I'm preaching to. But we do agree with this and know one thing, that we are admonished, listen, not to make predictions. That's a dead end road. We're not admonished to make predictions. We're admonished to anticipate, prepare, be ready for when Jesus comes again. We are expecting him, aren't we? Now, come on, this is going to lose some of its application if nobody here is expecting him. We are expecting Jesus to come again. I'm serious. If we are, if we are believers in the Bible, we understand that what uh, is called the coming of Jesus Christ uh, to take us out of here and then all that's encompassed uh, by what follows, 
This is the hope of the believer. We're talking about the resurrection of the just. We're talking about the rapture. Yes, sir. We're talking about the judgment seat of Christ. We're talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're talking about the thousand-year reign of Jesus. We're talking about the casting of the devil into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. And we're talking about that eternal reign with Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you, we got a whole lot to be thankful, fired up, and excited about. That's for sure. And we're supposed to be living with that anticipation. That expectation. I wanted to say to somebody that's, let's say, getting, you know, in their church life, they're slacking. I'm thinking back when I was pastoring, somebody be slacking in their Christian life. Well, Brother Sam, uh, my family and I, we've really prayed about it. We believe that we don't really have to be there on Wednesday night. It presents a real hardship on our family. Sometimes Sunday night, we've got somewhere else to go. And so uh, we just, uh, you know what I always wanted to say, and I may have said it a time or two, something like this, but what I always want to say is just this. So in your time in the Word and your expectation of the coming of Jesus, you are making this decision based upon your understanding of the Word of God and His coming. So that if you are less involved, less engaged, less applying your abilities and your gifts and your talents, you're doing this less because that's what you got out of reading your Bible that Jesus is coming again. Is that what you're telling me? Well, no. Well, then this conversation's over. You need to get right with God. Somebody help me here, please. Let's see. I mean, this is what motivates us is the coming of Jesus Christ. This is why we're not afraid of everything in this world. That's why a child of God doesn't live in fear. Fear is not of God. I said, fear is not of God. You don't know what I've been through. Fear is not of God. To live a life in fear. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it, help me please, more abundantly except when you're afraid of things. There's no such clause in there. No such clause. We should be living expecting Jesus to come again. Um, besides that, Paul gave us some real indicators to kind of look for. You know, I mean, one, one of the things I look at is I know things that are not to be fulfilled till Jesus comes in power and great glory. If you can see them beginning to take shape right now, you think, ooh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about there? And then Paul gave us some indication, you know. Uh, I just got asked the other day, Brother Sam, I just want a real honest answer. Do you think there's any hope for revival in America? And uh, you believe that it's possible? I said, well, you know, uh, the basic answer to that is with God, anything is possible. That's what the Word of God says. We have to embrace that. But it's hard for me to read Romans chapter 1 and then think we're on the verge of revival. It's hard for me to read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Timothy chapter 4, when he talks about the spiritual condition of the world and the deception that's taking place, it's hard for me to look at what he said the last days are going to be like and then look at our days and think, we're just right on the verge of revival. <laughs> Nothing in me thinks that. Do I think we could have revival? I, I said God can do anything. Do I think we should pray to that end? I think we should pray to that end. 
But you know, here's what gets me. Is there are people that if we went through the prophecy passages would check off and say, that's right, that's right, that's right. Jesus is coming in. We go look at the book of Daniel and where it's being taught in adult Sunday school right here at Southwest right now. We go through the book of Daniel and the prophecies of the Gentile, times of the Gentiles and such as this and all that takes place in uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, powerful, mighty, wonderful stuff. Go to the book of Ezekiel and see some of the prophecies that are made there in Isaiah. And we can go to these prophecies and I mean, just it's, it's obvious that Jesus is coming again. We're just so excited about that. But I'm, I'm here to tell you tonight that it's not like we're just supposed to sit around and fill our minds full of ideas about the coming of Jesus Christ. The fact that he is coming, if we are not giving ourselves completely to his purposes, then apparently we are not able to read this time. And don't forget the context of the entire chapter is that the uh, leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And then he talks about the fact that we are to beware of the Pharisees because of their covetousness. When they act like they are servants to the people, the hypocrites are mainly thinking about themselves. When they are supposed to be servants of God, rather than that, they are serving themselves of the people of God. That's where the Pharisees were. Now, what we got to do is look at our time and say, is anybody expecting Jesus to come again? Are we living with anticipation of Jesus Christ coming back again? All I got to do is say it right and give you some verses and everybody will say amen. Now back to our text. I want to ask this question. Of all the people there, rulers, common people, some believed, some didn't, disciples, of all the people there, question, of all the people there, who beside Jesus got it? Nobody that I know of. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and heard him. But that's right down the road. Of all the people Jesus talked to here in our text, who got it besides Jesus? Near as I can tell. The disciples, come on, don't mess with me on this. They're still fussing about who's on the right hand, who's on the left, who's going to be the greatest all the way to chapter 19 of Luke, right in the shadow of the cross. They're talking about this stuff. So they didn't get it. Would you agree with that? They didn't get it. And the masses didn't get it. The Pharisees didn't get it. Only Jesus. I wonder why he said, this just popped into my mind. It's not in my notes or anything. But I just wonder why Jesus said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? See, I'm afraid that they weren't the only ones that have a discrepancy in discernment. Because I could go around this room and call up any number of preachers and outside of this room and across the country and say, come give us a lesson, give us, a, give us an overview of biblical prophecy and many of them could handle it and do a great job. Many of them could do that. Let 
I'm going to tell you something that uh, I have said over and over in maybe the last 10, 15 years. And this comes from traveling around preaching from place to place and hear about the conditions of some churches and, uh, you know, pettiness and division and shift, going with the shifting winds, all kinds of stuff. And you know what the conclusion I came to? I can't prove this is right, but I'm, I'm, I'm very, very convicted of it myself that most of our churches don't really have any problems that couldn't be solved by spirit-filled, fired up, consumed preachers and pastors to deliver the Word of God and be obsessed with it like he was what lie before him. To be owned by it like he was and what was set before him. If we're going to call ourselves Christians and we agree that nobody back there got it but Jesus and only a handful of people out of all of, quote, Christendom, ooh, I don't like that word, uh, unquote, that everybody involved in that, uh, how many, what percentage really get it and understand it? And I would draw it down there to that and I would say, let's get all the fundamental Bible-believing independent Baptist preachers together and let's do some little testifying and a little soul searching and be real transparent and talk about what really matters to us in these days and in this times and see, is there a reason that the pews are asleep? Amen. Is there a reason that people aren't finding their way to church? Well, it's the last days. Enough of that. I can tell you right now, I'm observing it, witnessing it all across the United States of America. Churches that are in pursuit of sinners are finding some. People that are not pursuing sinners are making excuses to why they can't be pursued. I don't care if that sounds, I don't mean to sound ugly, but if it does, I'm not trying to be, I'm just telling you. And I have said for a long time, I've said, uh, my, I've said this to my wife, bless her heart, I don't know how many times. We, we, don't have, we don't have issues and problems that couldn't be solved by a preacher that is convicted that he has the living word of God in his hand and gets filled with the Holy Ghost and is on fire for God himself. That means that he has not got caught up by the cares of this life. Keep it in the context, please. I haven't departed from the context to talk about what I want to talk about because he was talking about the hold and the crippling hold that the things of this life and the stuff of this life and the possessions of this life can ham on a preacher and have on a pastor to where the affection is there and the patient is not in the delivery of the word of God. The patient is not in feeding the flock. The patient is not in shepherding the flock. The patient is not. It's a whole bunch of other things. Oh, by the way, I'm a pastor. And the churches hardly have any issues and problems that couldn't be addressed, I'm going to predict, solved by Holy Ghost, fired up, spirit-filled, passionate preaching of the Word of God. If Jesus, listen to this, was having a heart burst over what he saw, and we're his close followers? What gives you a heartburst? I'm not accusing. I'm asking. It's a fair question. If I was sitting down there, it wouldn't offend me if a preacher asked it. I'd begin with our pastors and I would just say, and our preachers, I would just say, what bursts your heart? 
can't say bad offerings. Almost everybody's offerings went up through this weirdness that we've been going through. I don't know the answer for that, but praise the Lord. Yep. What, what, is, what is our heart burst? What is it that's kindling in us? What is it that we know we're on a mission? We are on a mission. I can't imagine a man being in the ministry, being in the gospel ministry and just say, I'm in a straight because I'm getting to where I can't do as much, but I can't quit doing. I can't go like I used to go, but I can't quit going. Don't you think that if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be experiencing something like that? Knowing, knowing this isn't all about our comfort. This isn't all about our achieving life's goals. This isn't all about getting another plaque or what nice things people might say. It's about none of that. It's Jesus is coming again. Now, why aren't we motivated to give attention to what needs attention? There are people right here in this room that have the ability to read all kinds of indicators here in the investment world, in the fun world, in the pleasure world, and all this world, and they can't seem to get committed like a man ought to be committed knowing Jesus is coming again. I'm not setting out to rebuke anybody, but buddy, if you're sitting there and you're wasting God's people's time and your time, I'm just telling you right now, that church needs a man that is full of the Holy Ghost, that is full of the Word of God, that has a passion and a burden to preach the Word of God. That's what people need. That's what people need. And it's amazing when it's preached right. It's amazing what can be produced out of the pews from people that didn't seem to care that all of a sudden the Word of God. Don't stand up and say amen to God's Word changes lives. If you don't believe that, don't say amen when that song's sung. But if you believe that forevermore, let's get with it. I said, it's time to get with it. Jesus is coming again. No, I, I'm serious. Jesus Christ is coming again. There's no question about it. I don't have to go through all the verses. I don't have to try to prove that. But if we know that Jesus is coming again, but we live different than what the expectation demands, then what are we? Well, he called them hypocrites. Praise God. Hallelujah. Some folks here tonight, you have a preacher like that. He's on fire. He wants to pour out his soul. Every service matters. We're not piddling around with some. I don't know that word. Anybody in their right mind knows the word piddle. Somebody asked this morning. Yeah, piddling around and messing around. We're just going to have, uh, well, to celebrate Jesus' birth, we won't have church. That kind of silliness is going on all across the land. And on Wednesday night, we just kind of get together. Preach. Preach. I'm going to step into territory here I have no business stepping into. But be careful about sending half your church out to babysit in little children's classes so they don't have to be exposed to the man of God's preaching. Amen. What's that about? Well, that's what they do there. That's what they did. That's what they did. And people love it. People love it. I know a lot of people love it if they didn't have to have their face preached off three times a week. And they're carnal people. And I just wonder what would make a preacher think 
I'm going to go through this and, you know, this is a whole lot about my future and my life and me, my this and this and this. And there's a whole lot of that across the board in the ministry. God help us. I got a note I carry in my, let's see, do I have it in my Bible? It's in my other little book. And the guy said at this church I went to preach to in Kansas, I preached on Psalm 113, the high and lofty nature of God. And when I got there, he gave me a note and he said, I prayed this whole week that you'd leave Sam in Oklahoma and show us God. Thanks for the message. Now, I don't know what he thought about the rest of the week, but I'm just saying, at least that one. Is everybody with me here? Oh, listen. And, and why, what in a man would expect, what, what in a man would expect that we give less than passionate labor in the Word of God to communicate God's word to a people, to expect Jesus to come at any time. Therefore, here's how we live. I'm just telling you, why would a man expect that people be fired up about church or the coming of Jesus if they're not? Now, the consequences are great. Let's stand together. We're just going to read verse 57 through 59 where he gives a court scene. Oh, I wish I had time to go into this, but it'd have to be part two. Look, look at verse 57. Well, let's read verse 56. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky. You can read the political situation. You know what's going on in the world. You know you better protect your investments. You know a country can't go in debt like we're going in debt. Without some kind of consequences, if you, you can read that. You can watch the weather, know what the weather's supposed to be like tomorrow. But what about this time? You can just, how is it? I can hear Jesus saying, how is it you can be my child with my word in your hand and not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not? What is right? Why don't you come to the right conclusions? Why don't, what's keeping you from making a right choice about these matters? Here's the Old Testament prophecies. Here's the Messiah. What difference do you see there? Come on, Jesus is coming again. Why can't we make right decisions? To fail to do so is very costly. It's not my job or purpose right now to go into the detail of this. I'm just saying he sets up a court scene. And he said, when thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge. And the judge delivered to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. And he said, I tell thee, if you should have got it settled before, because I tell you right now, you're not going to get it settled for a long, long time, because you're going to pay to the very last might. All, all, all I'm going to say out of this tonight is this, accountability. There's a judgment seat of Christ. We will give an account. We shouldn't use Hebrews 13 just to show our authority over a flock. We should understand that we're going to have to give an account for how we dealt with that flock. In the spiritual condition. Yep. Accountability. And if we can read the times, understand this. 
If we, if, if we have that same discrepancy, discrepancy of discernment, it's a very costly thing. Well, I think I'll explain all of that. You read it yourself and explain it. And it can be explained far more than I'm going to go into tonight. I'm just trying to point out we have a day of accounting. Romans 14, why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou say or not thy brother? For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Know mm. this time. Silly Pharisees and hypocrite Jews look at Jesus and deny that he's the Messiah. That's hypocrisy. That's exactly what Jesus said. To look at the times and the Word of God. What do we see that makes us think it's fun time? What do we see that makes us think that we ought to escape any suffering or persecution? What do we see that makes us think, well, it's always prosperous. This is America. This is America. God help us. Thank you, Father, for the testimony of your son. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and he wanted to get it done. He knew it was coming. It weighed heavy on him. It weighed heavy on him. Help us to sense the burden as believers in this culture, in this society. Help every preacher, oh God, that we would sense the burden that when we stand to proclaim your precious word, that we need to be faithful and true. We need to be in utter dependence upon you. We need to lift up our voice and cry aloud. This is an alarming time. Why would not a preacher be sounding an alarm? I pray we'd think far less of all the trends and the prevailing winds of change. We'd think far less of that and more of your precious word. I know that sounds so trite, so repeated so often, but oh God, help us. I pray that the, that the things of this world, including the technology and all of the platforms and information avenues that are out there, may those things, if we notice them at all, weigh very lightly on us, not control us. If there's some that need to come to an altar and say, oh God, I want to do more than discharge a duty of handling a text and saying some things true about the Bible. I want to proclaim your word. I want your Holy Ghost to make a difference in lives. Oh God, make a difference in my life. Maybe there's some that need to come and pray tonight. Maybe there needs to be a revival among some of your servants. I, I do believe and I see it in, in your word. When you address those seven churches, you, you, address the, you, you address the angel of your right hand, that messenger to that church. Some of the issues that those churches had, no doubt shouldn't have been there. 
had the messenger of that church been delivering the word. God help us. Bless this invitation howsoever you will. Use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask uh, the music to play and the song. Go ahead, Brother Ted. The Spirit of God's come, uh, dealt with your heart. You need to come and pray. Then let's take opportunity to come. Some are praying where they are, some down here. However God's dealt with your heart.